0: It's more than a little ironic to be back preaching in a mask on a Sunday when we're hearing about eating with defiled hands and keeping yourself unstained by the world. Not loving this, I'm going to be perfectly honest. We're under some new guidelines from our bishop this week. For at least the next couple of weeks, we're returning to some of the stricter masking and distancing mandates that we were observing some months ago. And it's kind of ironic, since every one of our scripture readings, to some degree or another, is speaking this morning about purity and spotlessness, And what it means as our opening prayer suggests to increase in true religion, true religion is our theme for the day. And the tension then that is running through these readings which is a tension that is as old as organized religion itself, at least on a surface level, is this tension between what we might call purity or cleanliness on one hand and righteousness on the other hand. Perhaps you have heard the expression that cleanliness is next to godliness well, it ain't necessarily so, at least not for Jesus. Why do your disciples not live according to the traditions of the elders? That's the question that the Pharisees pose to Jesus, because his disciples are not washing their hands in an appropriate way and they're presumably not following the cleanliness practices that the pharisees are, uh, are seeking to promulgate the tension in this text is how to properly observe the commandments of moses how to keep kosher right literally that's what they're talking about and mark says that the pharisees and all of the judeans don't eat without thoroughly washing their hands their cups their pots and their kettles that's almost certainly historically inaccurate right because jesus and all of his disciples are judeans and are practicing and alternative tradition, presumably they're not the only ones, who are taking their inspiration actually from an older Hebrew tradition, from the tradition of the Psalms, that blamelessness of conduct, as the Psalms talk about it, is more important than bodily cleanliness when it comes to the purity that is demanded of God. We just heard Amy and Hannah sing sing this just just a moment ago. Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may abide upon your holy hill? That is the question. In ancient Israelite religion, at least insofar as purity rituals are concerned, who can draw near to the presence of God in the holy temple? That's the whole point of all the all the washing rituals. They had little to do with moral conduct. They had everything to do with zones of purity that allowed you to get closer and closer and closer to the holy of holies, right to the place where God was thought to dwell. Purity actually, an ancient Israelite religion, had nothing to do with morality. They were two different things. But the Psalms take a slightly different tack, and they start to blend the two of them. Who may dwell in God's tabernacle? Not necessarily the one who has observed all the purity rituals. It's the one who leads the blameless life, who speaks the truth, who has no guile in his or her heart, who does no evil to her friend, one who does not heap contempt upon his neighbor and has sworn to do no wrong. A blamelessness of conduct. That's how the Psalm tradition understands the meaning of true religion, if you like. And so that's the tradition, the the tradition of the elders, we might call it, that Jesus is operating out of. And the tension in this story from Mark's gospel is actually not a tension between Christianity on the one hand and Judaism on the other hand. That's often how it gets framed by Christian preachers that Judaism is an antiquated religion of rules and regulations, and Christianity is some pure religion of morality and ethics, hogwash right? This is an internal Jewish debate. All of these positions are Jewish positions, and Jesus is siding with the Jewish position of the Psalms, that true religion is not about what comes from the outside and defiles you. It's about what is inside of you. If we were going to update Jesus's teaching for our historical moment, we might hear him saying something like, You guys, there is no mask mandate, there is no cloth or paper shield, there is no amount of hand sanitizer or grocery scrub down that can protect you from the infection that lies in your heart. You cannot mask against your anger. You can't sanitize your hands against your anxiety. No Pfizer or Moderna vaccine will fix your fear. Because in our own way, we live in a culture that is just as obsessed with cleanliness and purity as were the Pharisees in the first century. And I don't mean that as a takedown of proper COVID precautions, right? Please do wear your mask. Please do get your vaccination. Please do look out for the health and safety of your neighbor. That's like religion 101. But maybe our own scruples around purity and cleanliness right now might help us build a bridge of understanding to the Pharisees and and those of their ilk. They're not the bad guys, right? They're not the wicked, evil promulgators of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. They're people like you and me who are trying their darndest to make sense of their religion in a time where the social norms of their world are changing very rapidly. The Pharisees are trying to, what they're trying to do is hang on to a distinctive Jewish identity in a context where the Roman government is trying actively to assimilate and destroy them, right? Think of the Pharisees actually less as like the the reactionary right-wingers of their day. I think they're more like an indigenous American tribe who is trying to hang on to language and culture, in the face of a government that is seemingly bent on annihilating all of that. And so the purity rituals that they hang to, right, the the washing of cups and pots and kettles, none of this is intended as a way of policing individual behavior to to make sure that everybody toes the line. It's about maintaining cultural distinctiveness, a distinctiveness that was being threatened with annihilation. Kosher laws function that way today for lots of contemporary Jewish believers who are intimately aware, innately aware of how tenuous their status feels as enfranchised members of Western society. The threat of assimilation, the threat of annihilation lies awfully close to its surface if you have grown up Jewish in this world. These rules are not about purity so much as they are about claiming your identity and maintaining your identity in a world that is actively seeking to destroy it. So in his way, Jesus is just as concerned with that question. Jesus is just as concerned with maintaining distinctiveness. His is not a religion that's throwing out all the rules in favor of individual freedom of conscience. In the Jesus tradition, Jesus is rooting himself in the tradition of the Psalms, right? The tradition of the Hebrew prophets, the, the strains of Jewish teaching that emphasize rightness of conduct over purity of practice. When the letter of James talks about it, James talks about remaining unsullied by the world, right? That's And that's what James is talking about, that the world represents the threat of an assimilationist culture, the threat of annihilation, the threat of behavioral norms that run contrary to the traditions of your elders. James says, if any of you think that you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongues your religion is worthless. Religion that is truly pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Orphans and widows is like Bible code, right? That's metonymy. It's meant to refer to anybody who's marginalized by society. Care for the vulnerable would be another way to translate that. And so for James, pure religion, true religion, means caring for those who are the most vulnerable in society, and then keeping oneself unstained by the world in a way that is redefined not as scrupulously following purity codes, but rather maintaining the code that James outlines. Be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. That's how you remain unsullied by the world. That's true religion, as far as this writer is concerned. That's the distinctiveness, if you like that is asked of the people of God. It's not about keeping your hands clean. It's kind of more about keeping your soul clean, if you like. So I don't know about you, my instinct when I'm faced with anything that starts to feel uncomfortably like policing a purity culture, is to get a little uncomfortable. If you grew up as I did in a conservative Christian home in the 80s and the 90s, you got a heavy dose of a particular kind of American purity culture. I had a purity ring that was my promise to remain unsullied by sex until I was married. There were books like I Kissed Dating Goodbye. You know, women actually were the ones who bore the brunt of this particular culture. It was a line of thinking that asked women and girls to keep their hemlines high, their eyes downcast, not to tempt their brothers into sin, basically asked women to police their own bodies as a kind of threat to moral behavior. And you don't need me up here to tell you how damaging that was, to grow up as a young woman in a culture like that, To, to be taught in a thousand spoken and unspoken ways that your body was an instrument of sin just by virtue of being there, and that the best thing you could do was to cover it up and hide it away and make sure it was never a means of tempting somebody to misbehave. I mean, that's a culture that was really damaging to men also. Nobody comes out particularly well in a purity-obsessed culture that's bent on policing bodies and regulating sexual norms. I don't think that we're actually any, any better than the Pharisees when it comes to most of this stuff. In fact, I think sometimes we're a lot worse. And that temptation towards purity culture lies very near the surface of American Christianity. Episcopalians escape the worst of it, although we have our own version of purity culture. I mean, look how spotless this altar is. I mean, you talk about policing cleanliness, and I mean, come back to the altar, deal. We'll we'll talk about that. And here's the thing, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with cleanliness. I mean, there's nothing wrong with maintaining a kind of cultural distinctiveness. I I find it a little awkward to be up here, like, full-throatedly defending purity culture. But there is nothing wrong with maintaining rituals to remind you that God is holy. And actually, the corollary of that is that you are also holy. If I'm going to defend purity culture, that's where it starts, right? You you wash your hands before you approach the altar because you're going to approach the altar right? Because you can, because you're you're worthy to do so, because the altar is actually the place you belong. This is not about keeping you away from God. It's about preparing you to encounter God in your body. That's why these rituals matter. The washing of hands, the, I mean, the washing of pots and kettles, a little bow that you might make as you enter your pew, the, the way that some of us were taught to kneel at this altar as a mark of respect. Others of us have learned to stand as a mark of honor and freedom. All of that is a way of saying our bodies really matter and how we inhabit our bodies really matters. God is not just concerned with my mind or my heart. God is concerned with the body God has made, with what I do with my hands and my feet and my eyes and my ears, looking and listening and tasting and smelling and touching, right? That's how religion, that's how religion works. That's how, that's how God comes to us through our senses, through our bodies. Disembodied religion is about the most boring thing I can imagine. Instead, we give you bread. Under normal circumstances, we give you a little bit of wine, too. You're not going to get it for the next couple of weeks. We've been asked to pull the chalice back. That's, that's COVID guidelines. But right, like when the diocese tells us we can, we're going to start offering the cup again, too. And that's about, you know, that's about safety. That's about prudence. It's about reminding ourselves that we are actually responsible for one another. I mean, you know, I may not be particularly in danger if I get a COVID breakthrough infection, but my neighbor could pick it up from me. And I actually am responsible for my neighbor's well-being. That too is a part of purity culture, as warped as that can sometimes get, that your health and safety is my responsibility, just as my health and safety is your responsibility. We belong one to another. And the enshrining of some kind of individual freedom mandate as the litmus test of religion, as some Christians in America are doing right now, justification for not getting vaccinated or not wearing masks. I mean, this idea that nobody but Jesus can tell me how to behave, that's about the least Christ-like response I can possibly imagine. There is nothing pure or sacred or honorable or true about that kind of religion. That's, That's selfishness and that's stubbornness. It's not true religion. as James understands it, as the psalmist understands it, as Jesus understands it, true religion asks me to put my neighbor's concerns sometimes above my own. True religion asks me to consider not just what germs might be on my hands, in my nose, but what anger and resentment I might be carrying in my heart, because that can infect somebody too. True religion asks me to think really carefully before I speak, to listen very carefully especially when i think i'm going to disagree with somebody true religion asks me to leave aside my selfishness and my fear and push into a far more dangerous place of vulnerability true religion asks me to hold the truth that my body is dangerous and that my body is sacred because bodies can enact an incredible kind of violence on each other we can infect one another in all kinds of ways not just through a viral load count We're meant to interact with one another, and that fact puts us at risk. So wash your hands, please wear a mask. This is about basic human decency. It's also a deeper reminder that your body matters and that my body matters. And as we learn how to respect and honor our own bodies, I think that's actually how we get better at respecting and honoring one another's bodies that learning starts right here right when we come up to this rail when we extend our hands we receive the bread that is offered to us that's meant as a reminder right you can imagine when the efficient hands you that bread it's as if she's saying to you your body is holy the stuff that your body does the eating and the digestion and even the elimination that is holy and as we learn how to honor our bodies we learn how to do that with one another we learn to speak gently we learn to listen hard that's true religion. If we can learn better how to care for one another, how to watch out for one another when we approach the throne of God, then we learn how to do it with boldness and confidence so that we might receive, as a letter to the Hebrew says, grace and mercy to find, to find grace and mercy in our time of deepest need. My friends, this is our time of deepest need. So tread gently and with great boldness because the world needs a truer religion in these days. So let's put it into practice, shall we?